0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed El-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor Radhika Sishan, who is a former head and retired professor of the Department of History at uh, Savi uh, Tribai Phule Pune University, and is now visiting faculty at the Symbiosis School for Liberal Arts Pune India. Her work has been primarily in the areas of economic history, particularly maritime and urban history of early modern India. And she's the author of three books, among others, and co-edited many more. And her most recent publication is Wage Earners in India, From 1500 to 1900, Regional Approaches in an International Context, co-edited with Jan uh, Lukassen in 2022. Today's uh, book, Connecting the Indian Ocean World Across Sea and Land, published by Routledge in 2023, is also co-edited with Ryoto Shimada, who is an Associate Professor at the Department of Asian History at the University of Tokyo. And he's the author also of the Intra-Asian Trade and Japanese Copper, by the Dutch East India Company during the 18th century. Across uh, connecting the Indian Ocean world across sea and land is a rich history of socioeconomic and cultural exchanges across time and space. This book and its companion, Merchants and Ports in the Indian Ocean World, which we'll also talk about, explore these connections around the wider Indian Ocean world. The book examines the many overlapping linkages that existed from the early modern period into the colonial era. It offers a clear understanding of the economic networks uh, that extended across the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic during the 19th century. With a critical historical lens, the volume discusses themes like the opium trade in the Malay-Indonesian archipelago, which is the biggest uh, opium trade market at the time, the Safavid mission to Siam, and the economic relationship between Pondicherry and West Africa via France, among many others. It's rich in archival material. This book will be of interest to scholars and researchers of the Indian Ocean history, maritime history, Indian history, uh, East, uh, East Asian history, uh, economic and commercial history, South Asian history and social history, anthropology and trade relations, uh, among other fields. Welcome, Professor uh, Radhika, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book.
1: Uh, My pleasure, Ahmed. I'm very happy to be here with you, and uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I guess I think i prefer to just say I'm a teacher of history. Maybe that works better, but that is my primary area, economic history, trade history.
0: Mm -hmm. It's pleasure to have you here. We would like to learn actually about yourself first. So can you please start us (laughs) off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study.
1: Now, that's a slightly complicated answer in that I was born in the city of Bangalore in the south of India, but I grew up across North India because my father was in the Indian Air Force, and so we changed schools regularly. And I went to, I think, eight schools before I finally finished my schooling. And then I studied in Delhi. So I did my graduation, post-graduation all from Delhi. Went on to do my MPhil as well from there. Started my PhD there, but the logistics were far too difficult. I finally submitted my PhD to Pune University. And maritime actually is a rather more complicated answer because, uh, well, Fighter bases in India are mostly in North India. So we had nothing to do with the sea as a regular course of of events. But on the other hand, my uh, grandfather had a house on the beach in the city of Madras, now called Chennai. And so holidays were spent on the sea, on the beach more than anything else. So I grew up talking to fisher folk, watching them bringing their catch, watching them pull up their boats, watching them repair their boats, all of that. So the maritime connection, I guess, came through more of a coastal and occupational connection that I saw rather than the maritime history that I focus on primarily these days. Then when I went on to do my PhD, I was more interested in trade than in anything else, and particularly trade in textiles. As I explored the trade in textiles, I realized more and more that I could not talk about textiles on a uh, in the Indian context alone. I needed to look at the connected history of textiles around the Indian Ocean world. And that's where my journey into maritime history actually began. So I'm still not sure whether to call it maritime history or economic history or trade history or urban history. So all of these are intertwined in the kind of work that I do.
0: (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Um, How would you describe your encounter with the maritime in terms of scholarship? Where do you see the scholarship on Indian uh, or South Asian historiography vis-a-vis the wider Indian Ocean world?
1: Many of us who started studying, I mean, who went into our higher studies in the mid to late 70s, were exposed to the works of primarily three historians. One was, of course, the great maritime historian, Fernand Rodel. That's when we, with the introduction to his writings, particularly the Mediterranean and the age of Philip II, that's where we realized, I think for the first time, that the oceanic worlds could be studied and had to be studied. That was our introduction. And this was added to by Professor Ashim Dasgupta here in India, who looked at the early modern and at merchant connections in particular. So he looked at the what later came to be called Indian responses to the arrival of the Europeans. So he looked at ports like Surat. He looked, he studied in great detail the establishment of the Kingdom of Travancore on the Southeast coast of India. And he looked at the ways in which these, uh, the the kings of the time really engaged with the Europeans on their own terms, as well as on the basis of the kinds of patterns that the Europeans had brought in. And from there, I went on into the writings of uh, Michael Pearson who in his work on the Portuguese in Gujarat, looked at the Indian response to the arrival of the Europeans. That I think is where many of us began to study the maritime world and the Indian responses to this arriving. At a different level, I will say that many of us worked on, the, me included, worked on the uh, early modern world because prior to the, this period prior to say about 1500. Our sources are numerous, but they are in so many languages that it's very difficult for us to get a grasp on the entire range. English and French and Dutch are finally easier to handle. And so I guess we many of us moved into the early modern world because of the availability and the ease of accessing these documents. And that's where we started. There have been a whole lot of others who have influenced my writing. Uh, there is Professor Himanshu who has worked on early India and the coastal connections of early India. Professor Ranabir Chakraborty who has looked at the early medieval world of trade beyond India and he was in fact, one of the first to introduce me to the Geniza documents. So these are the people who with whom I engaged when I was starting. But I also realized on my own and with my own research that while there was a lot of talk about merchants, what we didn't really do in great detail was the kinds of linkages that existed with the mercantile community communities in the past, as well as those that were in the early modern. And even more, we didn't really engage with the ways in which the Europeans who came into India between the 16th and the late 17th century dealt with the ground reality of the states that were powerful. So I moved into looking at the connections between Indian traders, Asian traders, the existing Indian empires, and then looking at Indian traders and Europeans, and then looking at this triangular connection of Indian state systems, Indian traders and Europeans, and trying to understand the relationship between all of them in this period. So that's been my journey into the Maritime world.
0: That's beautiful thinking about these linkages and how the historiography have developed since then and to talk about uh, not one but two volumes uh on the indian ocean world and south asia and uh, i would like to learn about this collaboration which is unusual in the indian ocean world it's usually between the south and the north but i like the fact that it was between um south asian and japanese scholars coming together to uh come up with these uh two volumes you and professor um Shimada, so can you talk more about this collaboration between um, Tokyo and...
1: First of all, I will say that the Japanese collaboration with particularly Pune and with Chennai has been a very, very long one. We had a scholar we have for the south of India. We had the great Japanese scholar Noboru Karashima, who did so much work on aspects of medieval South Indian history including trade, and his work on uh, the inscriptions on tabulating, uh, collaborating with the Tamil scholars and to work on that has been phenomenal. So that's one area of the Japanese connection. The other area is specific to Pune. The Japanese scholar Hiroshi Fukazawa did his PhD thesis on social socio-economic structures at village level in the present-day state of Maharashtra and that connection that he established has been continued. So we have in fact a Japan culture house here in Pune in the heart of the old city and that's where the and that Japanese connection has been maintained. So we do have scholars who come to Pune University regularly, spend a year here, learn Marathi, work with the language and then I I will say that we Indians have not uh, done the opposite and we've most of us not learned Japanese very well. And part of it is the difficulty that we have with the script itself. But there is a connection with Japan. This particular book, however, has a slightly different trajectory in that uh, Ryota Shimada and I both work on trade and on uh, European uh, companies in the Bay of Bengal and the Eastern Indian Ocean World. And uh, we have, well, in India, we have an organization called the Indian Council for Social Science Research. They, along with the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, had floated a call for a joint proposal between India and Japan. So it was called the ICSSR-JSPS Joint Seminar Proposal. And Ryoto and I applied and we were given funds by the respective bodies. And that's where this came in. And we decided to make sure that we would have seven Indian and seven Japanese scholars, given that Professor Shimada and I both work on the early modern, that was our area of interest. So we called on scholars who worked in the same area. The seminars happened in 2018, 17 and 18. And then we were extremely busy by the time we put together the volume for publication and got everything, got the revisions done, got all the drafts. Well, COVID hit and the world changed. So the volumes were submitted and nobody could do anything thereafter because with lockdown, well, everything was locked down. So when the lockdown was lifted, we contacted all our authors again and asked them to revise because it had been four years since they had submitted their final papers. So we asked them to revisit their papers, to add, to update whatever they wanted. And then finally, the book saw light of day in 2023. Routledge had held our hand all through all of this long process, and it has been a long process. In the meantime, one more thing happened, which was that uh, Routledge, as a publishing house decided that edited volumes had to be of a shorter length of uh, maximum 80,000 words. And our volume came into 140,000 words. So they asked us to split it up into two companion volumes, which is what we have done. The first volume is Connecting the Indian Ocean World Across Sea and Land. The second is Merchants and Ports in the Indian Ocean World Across Sea and Land. So we've kept the subtitle common to both the volumes. That's been our journey for these two books.
0: (laughs) I see what a journey. Can you say more about how would you like to see uh, these collaborations going forward between uh, universities and the Indian Ocean world? And where do you see uh, future directions taking?
1: I think we need to go a little further back in time and a little further forward in time as well. We need to link with universities, not just in South Asia, but also in the broader connected world of the Indian Ocean. So I would look for linkages with, for instance, Yemen. I mean, Elizabeth Lambon is doing phenomenal work on the Yemen archives and the connection between Yemen and India. We need to look more at the Cairo and those connections. We need to link with universities around the Indian Ocean world to try and get a sense of both the connections and the many uh, parallel or contrary trajectories of developments in each of these places. Now, I, for instance, would know the kinds of developments that took place in much of peninsular India, but I would not be able to comment equally on developments in the uh, Malay Peninsula, in Indonesia, even though there is a connect with all of these, I wouldn't be able to speak authoritatively about this. Further, all of these were, with the exception of Japan, all of these were part of the colonized world. And so I think we need to take it a little further forward in time as well, and look at what all changed in the period of colonialism, what happened before colonialism, what happened during colonialism, and what is the fallout of both of these in today's world. So I would look for collaborations in and around all of the Indian Ocean world. Maybe going as far as, Michael Pearson was Australia, so maybe going as far as the Asia-Pacific world. Because we, well, we have, uh, European studies talk of the long 18th century. But I've been arguing that maybe we should in the Asian world talk of the long 17th century and then look at a short 18th century. So we need to engage with those debates also. That's the future that I see in Indian Ocean studies as well. Starting that, we're Ryoto and I are looking at expanding this connection Uh, Ryoto in uh, Japan has actually set up an Indian Ocean Studies Center which is an informal organization and some of us from India are part of that so we've been having these fairly regular online meetings where we've been sharing whatever we've been doing, the current research, the current whatever, there are about seven of us so far so we've been sharing whatever research and we've been discussing that so perhaps informal. And maybe in due course, that would become more formalized.
0: Right. And and the, and the position of South Asia between the two sides of the Indian Ocean also situated quite well historically and institutionally to connect to all of these regional uh, hubs of you know knowledge production and universities to foster scholarship on the Indian Ocean. So... That's
1: true. And uh, what Ryoto told me, which I hadn't thought about, is that time-wise also, India is in the center, South Asia is in the center. So the time zones of India can be adjusted to west and east of India as well. Squid books out really well in in the in these days of online meetings. It also works out yes. well.
0: Yes, I'm really glad because I'm speaking to you from Dubai, from Arabia, and you are in mm. South Asia. And the book was yes. co-edited with Japanese scholars and written also by some of them. So it's a beautiful <laughs> connection we are making here.
1: It is. It is, and we can go into. Africa as well because yes. I've got uh, people in South Africa for whom it's slightly earlier in the day but it's it still works well. So with Africa and Australia the time wise it works out pretty well. It's easy enough to adjust to all of
0: that. (laughs) Yes, let's decolonize the Indian Ocean world. Yes,
1: that's Um, true. It's very important to do that.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, Let's delve into the volumes. Uh, Connecting the Indian Ocean world. Thinking about the connective tissue of the Indian Ocean, um, you divide the volume into two parts, connections (laughs) by sea, and the second part, interland connections can you give us an overview of uh, the thematic and methodological approaches of these different scholars in their chapters
1: um the first section that's connections by sea looked as the title suggests it looks at the long distance connections between points uh between points of origin somewhere in asia and connecting points maybe somewhere else in asia or just circular movements around the Asian world. So the opium trade is the Malay-Indonesian archipelago, but the opium itself is not sourced in either the Malaysian or the Indonesian archipelago. It comes from different areas. And that is both uh, navigated by and later controlled by the Dutch East India Company. So we have a threefold presence over there which is of the Dutch, the profits that they wanted to make, and the ways in which they are looking at building up the profits through an item which is in demand, which is very profitable, and then which goes into a whole lot of uh, trade connections as well. The peninsula, then the Indonesian archipelago, becomes something which is of prime importance for the uh, additional spread of opium beyond the archipelago into other parts of the Southeast Asian world, right through up to probably Makassar. That is something that Okubo is working on as well. So we've got a different area. Over here. Then it's, it's also something that I think is a good reminder for us because We tend to talk of opium only in the context of things like the opium wars of the 19th century and ignore the reality of opium having a long trading history in the uh, late 17th and 18th centuries as well. And this is yet another dimension that we need to look at through the opium trade is the methods of control that were beginning to be asserted by the company. So words like smuggling, piracy, uh, banditry on the seas, all of these start coming up in the context of the opium trade, but then go beyond the opium trade into a whole lot of things. Then we move into a different area, which is of uh, a diplomatic maneuver between Persia and Southeast Asia. Because in June 1685, the Safavid Emperor sent a diplomatic mission to the kingdom of Ayutthaya in Siam. That's Thailand, basically. And this is the entire voyage is recorded in a book called the Safina suleimani which is in Persian. And this round trip takes about um, five, six years. But it is a detailed account of something which we actually take for granted. How from Persia does the ship move from, Is? how does the delegation move from Isfahan to Basra through the Persian Gulf, down to the coast of India, around India, and into Siam? What are the connections? We've got a detailed account of their uh, stopping at the port of Madras and the welcome that they got at Madras. We also get a great deal of the political maneuvering that is happening with the local regimes, the European companies, and this diplomatic embassy. At another level, it's also a marker of the decline of the Persian presence in the Indian Ocean world. And the Persian presence was a very important one, because in the 17th century, some of our greatest merchant names in India and in the Bay of Bengal are Persian nobility, there's one made Kamala who's been talked about. So here is a different angle, a diplomatic endeavor, which finally ends up being a failure diplomatically, and in a sense marks the end of the Persian viable commercial presence in the Indian Ocean world. So it is a record at one level of the end of a commercial network. Uh, The next chapter takes us a little later, which is into the French colonial presence and the colonial presence in Pondicherry, as well as in West Africa, Senegal in particular. So the ways in which Pondicherry becomes an area of, well, has always been an area for important textiles, but the a uh, link for the textiles is now no longer the Asian merchant, it is the French company. So the factory that is set up in Pondicherry, and it is a factory, 1820s, so there's a factory that's set up. There's a factory, there is a the European looms are brought into Pondicherry. The, it's made, but it's made according to the requirements of the cynical market and not the European requirements. So both a localization and an internationalization, both of which had always happened, are coming out in this paper. And this section ends with a description of the circulatory pattern of a community which is based in India, the Kachi Bhatia, which is based on the west coast of India, but which has extensively moved around. It continues to be of immense importance in the entire uh, northern Arabian Sea region, so the Kachibhatia a circulatory migratory system, which is both fixed and nomadic. So we have connections being reinforced through family, through language, through trade, through context, and something that has been maintained over a whole lot of time. So. Uh, the continuity of the tradition of mobility, the continuity of the areas of region, but changes in the ways in which the circulation happened and changes in what is being circulated beyond the people. And then we move to the hinterland connections. Our basic idea here was that connections by sea have to be backed up by The connections to the production centers within India. And we were sure that we were looking at India in a whole lot of ways as the center. So this section looks specifically at the ways in which India supplied for the trade to the world. But while we're talking of that, we are talking also about the kinds of port and hinterland dynamics that that exist. So we start with, these are all more micro-level studies based entirely on, or almost entirely on uh, local language sources. One of the papers is more on the English records, but other two are entirely based on English language sources. So looking at what kinds of connections exist between ports, how did the ports access the hinterland markets? Where are the hinterland markets? What, Which ports declined? Which came up? What is the reaction? And all of them talk of the 18th century, which in India is a period of transition. Local uh, smaller scale kingdoms are declining. But you still have two overarching, and all three of these papers are to do with the Western part of India. So we have one huge political power coming up, the Maratha power, and the ways in which boats declined, boats, established, boats were established, merchants established connections, some with reference to the state, many with no reference to the state whatsoever. And the last paper over here is about internal transport that we cannot talk of hinterland connections without transport mechanisms between coast and interior. So what kind of taxes, what kind of roads, what kind of uh, pack animals, and this is an area where to get to the coast, you have to cross the hills, it's called the carts. So the pack animals and the routes across, and in all three, the kinds of state policies that promote this connection and maintain this connection. That's what we are primarily focusing on in this area.
0: That's that's a great overview of the volume. Thank you so much for sharing that. And of course, there are so many details that we cannot uh, go through. And I would advise the listeners to go and check them out for themselves because they are quite rich, not just in their narratives, but also in the data that they bring in uh, to uh, elucidate their arguments. And the companion volume um, merchants and and ports in the Indian Ocean world that that you've mentioned is uh, supplements uh, and extends the geography of of the other volume connecting the Indian Ocean world by focusing on South Asia and Japan in two parts. The first part is India and Japan, the second merchants and trading networks. And uh, as well, the uh, the chapters are also authored by Japanese and South Asian uh, scholars, covering um, the early modern period roughly. Um, as an economic historian, uh, where do you find the utility of capitalism and capitalism's history in trying to think of the early modern Indian Ocean?
1: That's uh, a little problematic because. Capitalism's history, I think, needs to be rethought from the Asian perspective as well. Thanks to colonialism, there has been the an overarching idea of capitalism as being only the model that came into effect in Western Europe. But I think we need to look at it a little bit more to try and understand that this is the period of merchant capital in South Asia and in the Indian Ocean world as well. Uh, For instance, we have, uh, well, we have Chris Bailey and Sanjay Subramaniam who talked of portfolio capitalism, of the link between nobility and with the the trading world. We also have people like uh, uh, a man who was called Falcon, who was part of the Ayutthaya Empire who was not from Ayutthaya, and who was extremely important in the way in which he dealt with all the Europeans. So I think we need to look at capitalism as not just industrial or financial capitalism, but as venture, the older form, and look at the kinds of ventures and the kinds of connections with the state systems that existed around. So yes, we need to rethink and go back and revisit the entire debate on capitalism again. And maybe a starting point could well be uh, Antragonde Frank's uh, reorient and go on from there to look at what are we looking at? Is there a singular capitalism? Is there are there many capitalisms? And what were the trajectories of these many capitalisms in different parts of the world? I think we need to deal with that far more than we have been today.
0: Right. And another uh, companion concept is the bazaar. What's your opinion on the bazaar in the early modern period?
1: The bazaar is an extremely vibrant organization. It is something which is both social and economic, and it is, well, of course, at a very social level, it is a, a hotbed of rumours. So there's a whole lot of things that are circulating. So there's circulation of money, there's circulation of good, there's circulation of just plain gossip. But that gossip is often rooted in a very deeply uh, structured knowledge of the areas of connection. So the bazaar is to be seen as both a hub, and as part of that entire network of markets around the Indian Ocean world. For instance, um, when there was a civil war in Yemen, the rate of exchange for the the commission on the bill of exchange to be paid on uh, one of the interior towns to be taken from Surat to Barhanpur, goes up phenomenally and the logic over there was that because we cannot be sure that yemen will supply will be able to absorb the goods that we are sourcing from interior india so we need to factor that into our bill of exchange and therefore the rate of exchange the rate on the bill goes up phenomenally during this is early 17th century same logic, we have uh, the port city of chaul which has permission to mint Persian-style Laran coins, and that's done. The difference is very carefully maintained, and the mint master is there to check, to make sure that the Laran coins of Chowl and the lari coins, while looking similar, are still identifiable as being minted in India and minted in Persia but they are current coins. So we need to look at the bazaar as a space for social interaction, for knowledge interaction, for cross-cultural connections, and as the unit for the connected worlds of the Indian Ocean. We have to study the bazaar in greater detail, not just as the comprador, not as rulers, townsmen and bazaars, but beyond that, into the bazaar as a socioeconomic cultural unit which while being uh possibly small is wide in its reach across cultures across regions
0: that's that's very beautifully put and i agree with you and this really shows clearly in the i would say also in the ports and merchants chapter if you look at mm-hmm. how uh, we have uh, micro histories uh, we have uh, histories of textile of gold trade, uh, comparative history of Surat and Nagasaki, uh, history of fraud and security between Agra and Surat, the merchants of the Coromandel Coast, and the trade of uh, a northern Indian uh, sultanate, uh, Adil Shahi uh, of Bijapur, in the Indian Ocean. So we we can examine the bazaar also from all of these um, vantage points, thinking about commodities, thinking about different uh, trade routes, thinking about port uh, uh, towns and how they uh, compare and intersect and their interaction with the indian ocean uh, trade but also with the europeans and thinking about how the bazaar actually as a site but as a conceptual space functioned in the early modern period of the indian ocean
1: it's very important it's also uh, it's also a physical space for instance isfahan has these uh, caravanserais some of them that still exist and we have uh, I mean, the records, I'm told, give us 17 caravanserais, which are divided, which are identified by ethnic origin. So we have the caravanserai of the Indian merchants, of the Multani merchants, of the, the Armenians, often shared the Indian. But we have a whole lot of caravanserais, which are defined ethnically, and which then have an entire network of connections, which also provides news about what is happening beyond Isfahan to those who have come to Isfahan from the west of Isfahan and from the east of Isfahan. So we've got the Karaman Sarai as well as uh, intersection, points of intersection. So the mobility of the bazaar in conceptual terms, the um, static physicality and the open, Mo- the mobile interface of the bazaar, as a concept, needs to be looked at much more carefully.
0: Indeed. And in addition to being uh, a co-editor of the two volumes, you've also uh, authored the chapter, Chapter 6, uh, right. of The Coromandel Coast in the 17th century. Can you uh, introduce the Coromandel Coast in the 17th century to our listeners to think about how the trade operated from Masuli Patnam to uh, Fort uh, St. David?
1: Okay, now geographically, the Coromandel Coast is the uh, point which is, well, the, the map of India sort of projects outwards a little bit north of the Pork Straits. It projects a little bit into the Bay of Bengal. It's called uh, Point Kalamir. And that is supposed to be the starting point. After that, it's a straight up to the mouth of the uh, Krishna River. That's the Coromandel. It's divided into two parts, the North Coromandel and the South Coromandel. The word Coromandel itself goes back to the 10th, 11th century when the Cholas reached, ruled the region. And they called it their, the term that they used for their provinces was Mandal or mandalam. So this was the Chola mandalam, which has become Coromandel. The Chola Mandal has become the Coromandel that's your starting point. Now, this is uh, an extremely important area. In fact, the entire coast, I can't actually say that only this area, but the Coromandel Coast is something which has a very distinct pattern of connections, which reach back into antiquity. So we have ports, which in Nagapattinam, which I've talked about over here, and uh, Maliapur are all referred to in the uh, Periplus of the erythraean Sea. In fact, near Pondicherry has been found the largest hoard of Roman gold coins outside the Roman Empire. It's in a site called Arikamedu. So it's a very, very old connection. This area historically has had links across the Bay of Bengal with particularly Burma and Ireland, and then to Malaysia. And of course along the coast up and down so the coromandel is an, an area which is important for primarily three things one is the the trade in rice because this is a rice growing area and the rice moves up and down the coast regularly so we've got uh, regular movements of different kinds of rice going up and down up the stream upstream there are a whole lot of what Ken Hall has called upstream and downstream linkages, and these are maintained through rice. The second and equally important is elephants, because elephants are often brought from both Sri Lanka and the Burmese forests into the Coromandel region, because access to the elephant growing, the elephant areas of South India is in many ways, probably more difficult than bringing the elephants by sea. So there is the elephant trade that happens, and there is, most important of all, there is the textile trade. There is a 17th century text in uh, the Malay language, which is called the Hikayat Panjar, which mentions 54 varieties of coromandel textiles. And these 54 varieties of textiles are all to be found in a, 30 miles stretch of the Coromandel coast. So we've got production, we've got merchants, and we've got a very well established network of contacts around the Bay of Bengal world. That is the location. And these merchants have a very long history. So you go back into the past, we've got the guild system. There was one guild which uh, is mentioned in records of Thailand, which is mentioned in records at uh, China. They are given permission to uh, build a temple to the god Shiva because of the amount of time that they spend in China. So there is this immense linkage around the Bay of Bengal and the extended Bay of Bengal world. The governmental looks eastwards and the connections are all towards Burma, Southeast Asia, Indonesia. Historically, one of the classic uh, examples of this linkage has been the great expedition that the Chola King launched in the 11th century to the kingdom of Srivijaya, which is uh, the the second crossroad of the Indian Ocean. And it's being argued increasingly that that expedition under Srivijaya was to make sure that they broke into the Chinese controlled areas as well. So we've got these historic connections. A phenomenal area of trade, something on which we need, we all need to do a lot more work.
0: Indeed, Um, I can't resist by by asking you this, and maybe it's not fair because it's not in the book, but um, so the book has a a, a comparison between um, Nagasaki and Surat in the 17th century. Mm And I couldn't help but to think of the Malabar coast at the same time you're talking about the Coromandel coast and how they mirror each other in some ways, but also they don't. So do you have any thoughts on thinking comparatively or maybe connectedly between the Malabar and the Coromandel?
1: Yes, definitely in that, okay, one um, connection that needs to be made is, again, a historic one, in that Malabar is a paper-producing area and that paper is taken across to the east coast to the coromandel coast as well but more than that i think we need to look at the uh, ports themselves so the comparisons to be made between calicut as a port and nagapattinam as a port need to be done much more carefully port dynamics port connections merchant connections All of these have to be examined in, and this I think is an area of both comparison and of uh, identifying different trajectories. Now, Calicut, for instance, becomes in many ways uh, a mercantile system. So with the Calicut King, the Zamorin, who does get very concerned with the trade and he is concerned with the uh, long-distance Indian Ocean trade and with the ways in which that trade needs to be uh, monitored and controlled to the best advantage of Calicut, that is definitely to be looked at. Nagapatnam, on the other hand, does not have that kind of a separate mercantile system because Nagapatnam is seen as the port of the internal empire, the Tanjore kingdom, and therefore is monitored in terms of the kingdom's requirements rather than the port requirements alone these are areas that need to be examined start doing it these need to be looked at a little more carefully
0: thank you for setting the agenda for future researchers to <laughs> take up this project which is uh, would be wonderful addition to the indian ocean scholarship well, uh, Professor Radhika, I've taken a lot of your time and we would like to know who would you hope would read this book and what sort of impact would you hope the two volumes uh, would have on the field?
1: We hope that it will uh, increase interest and increase research into these areas because we we know there are gaps. We hope we've identified the gaps and we hope the young scholars will come in to fill these gaps. Regional as well as connected perspectives need to be brought in much more, and we hope that this will stimulate interest, readership, and research into the Indian Ocean world.
0: Yes, definitely, and and we need more uh, of these sorts of chapters that integrate Japan into the wider Indian Ocean world, and. We do. Yes, do, and, and the Indo-Pacific region needs to be brought closer together in how we conceptualize the space, uh, these different regional networks. Uh, this has been uh, an amazing conversation, and uh, I know you just published two volumes, uh, but we, we we like to ask about future or f- projects or projects you would like to work on. So would you share some of that with us?
1: Okay, I'm currently actually going back a little more in time as in I'm working on a project on uh, weaving communities and textiles and looking at the, uh, the ways in which actually this is more economic history specifically rather than maritime history because I'm looking at the weaving communities that were established between the 10th and the 14th centuries in India and the kinds of textiles. And then I'll move into those textiles in the larger Indian. So what I'm working on right now is the weaving communities of South India. I've also just finished a project on um, the ports and hinterlands of the Deccan, that's the uh, peninsular region, and looking at the getting maps made of the routes that connect the different ports across the peninsula so that I have to revise and submit for publication. So that's what's been, that's the most recent.
0: <laughs> we look forward to these projects and maybe have you again on the podcast if you would like. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insights and thoughts about uh, the volumes. and. I would urge your readers to pick them up and explore these uh, different amazing chapters with their rich um, backgrounds and contributions to the field. Um, thank you so much for joining us today to listen to today's episode in which we explore two volumes. Uh, we explored connecting the Indian Ocean world across and land and merchants and ports in the Indian Ocean world. This is your host, Ahmed al Stay tuned for the next episode of new books in the Indian Ocean world.
1: Thank you so much, Amit, for inviting me. It was a pleasure being on this podcast. Thank you.
0: Thank you.